In June, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a 1913 New York law requiring persons seeking a permit to carry guns in public to show that they had a specific need for doing so. The decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin could obstruct efforts by policymakers to combat the growing gun violence epidemic in the United States. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michael Ulrich, an Assistant Professor of Health Law, Ethics, and Human Rights at the Boston University School of Public Health and School of Law. Professor Ulrich has written a perspective article about the Bruin decision and public health. Professor Ulrich, could you start by explaining the details of this case? What did the New York law say and why was it challenged? So the essential elements of the New York law were to minimize the amount of firearms that were in the public sphere. And the way that New York sought to do this was to require that people obtain a license to carry a firearm in public. But to get that license, they needed to show that they had good cause or proper cause, which really meant that there was a specific reason that they could articulate that they needed to carry a firearm in public beyond a general desire to have one in case a need of self-defense arose. And this was challenged, obviously, because many people couldn't necessarily specify why or a specific incident or a specific threat as to why they wanted to carry one, but still felt that they wanted to and should be able to carry one again if the need arose. So how many other states have laws like this one in New York? And is there evidence that they actually helped to reduce gun violence? So there's five other states that had it at the time of the case, and also the District of Columbia had it. And that's a small amount relative to the entire side of the country, but they were many of the largest states. So those jurisdictions still did cover about 80 million people in total. And there is evidence that they actually were helpful in helping to reduce or minimize the amount of gun violence, though a lot of the evidence actually looked in the other direction, which was, is there evidence that laxer gun restrictions in terms of carrying in firearms in public, that they had higher rates of gun violence. And in particular, there were some states that had these kinds of restrictions, or at least some restrictions, and then got rid of them. And so also looking at within those states, did the gun violence increase after those restrictions beyond what models and the data would suggest would have been? Again, that research also suggested that laxer gun laws with regard to carrying in public were actually more likely to exacerbate gun violence than to stem it. Given all of that, what factors did the Supreme Court consider when it struck down the New York law? So the court did not take into consideration these public health measures. Very narrowly, they focused on the right in question. So in essence, the issue for the court was, is there a Second Amendment right to carry a firearm in public And if so, then this kind of restriction, again, would be violating that right for individuals who want to carry a firearm in case they need it for self-defense, but at the same time didn't have a specific justification that qualified under New York or one of the other jurisdictions' mandates. And so in doing that, it was a much more historically backwards-looking analysis, looking at the way that the Second Amendment and the rights were interpreted, but also what other kinds of laws restricting gun rights were present during the founding era, before the founding, 
And then also around the time of Reconstruction, when the 14th Amendment was passed, which would have um, been relevant to how did they see the Bill of Rights being enforced against the states. And so really, that was the focus of the court's analysis. And so in doing that, they said, there's not enough evidence to show that restricting the ability to carry a firearm in public was within the state's authority. So there was a right to carry a gun in public, and there was not sufficient evidence, at least in the majority opinion's mind, to show that the state could restrict that right. And so in essence, that was the end of the analysis without consideration of, well, what does gun violence look like currently? Or what does this restriction that New York has, does it actually mitigate gun violence? Those sort of things did not come into the court's analysis. So in fact, you write in your perspective article that even as the court's decision may directly exacerbate gun violence, the reasoning behind it could actually make matters even worse. So can you talk about that a little bit? One way that this case could have gone, for example, is there is a right to carry guns in public, but there's also a corresponding authority for the state to limit that right in some senses to mitigate gun violence if there is a gun violence issue. So they could have said, well, this measure just isn't actually doing it. Or alternatively, they could have said, that it's being too broadly enforced. And the scope of what qualifies in terms of a justifiable reason to carry is too narrow. And so they could have left that law in place and said it needs to be enforced in a different manner. But instead, what the court did was say, essentially, we need to look historically to determine the scope of the right. And in doing so, if some aspect falls within the scope of the Second Amendment right, and it's protected, then that is, in essence, the end of the analysis. And another problem with that is, in determining what is the scope of that right, they look for, are there, or were there restrictions, rather, in the past that were similar enough to the ones that are currently being challenged? And that's problematic because, frankly, guns were not similar during those eras in which they're looking, during the founding and reconstruction, but also gun violence wasn't the same kind of problem. So if we think about something like mass shootings and large capacity magazines, the ability to shoot 50 bullets, let's say, out of one magazine, as opposed to a revolver, right, which would hold six, that capacity didn't exist at the founding. So you're not going to find any laws restricting large capacity magazines. So if that's the only form of analysis that's relevant, then it's going to be difficult to justify why the state has the authority then to restrict large capacity magazines when you can't point to anything historically that is exactly the same. In a related perspective article, Tobin Tyler discusses the potential implications of Bruin and of Dobbs v. Jackson women's health for people who are experiencing intimate partner violence. So what do you think the Bruin decision will mean for members of marginalized populations or people who are already at risk for violence? I think there's a big concern because they already suffer disproportionately from gun violence. And so Again, the data suggests that laxer gun restrictions leads to more gun violence, and so more, more gun violence inevitably is then going to continue, likely to fall disproportionately on those same marginalized populations. For women in particular, and especially with intimate partner violence, 
I think that it's problematic because the court doesn't take these things into consideration. And in particular, one of the problems that I have with the way that the court interprets Second Amendment rights is it seems somewhat detached from the real world experiences. So women in marginalized populations are often used to justify a broader Second Amendment interpretation, saying these are targeted groups, they are targeted for violence, and therefore they should have broad access to firearms to protect themselves. When in reality, it's more likely that broad Second Amendment interpretations would put them more at risk in actuality. And then for, again, staying with women and intimate partner violence, what we've seen is plenty of cases where, though the Second Amendment is grounded in the notion of self-defense, it often doesn't work for women who use firearms to protect themselves against violent partners, where many women who have defended themselves and have shot and in some circumstances killed their violent partners or their abusive partners, they've gone to jail. And in those circumstances, some courts have said, well, this has been happening over time. Why didn't you leave? You had the ability to leave and therefore shooting the victim was unnecessary. And so you also see this sort of disparities in how the interpretation of when is violence justified is not defined. And again, it's something that the court doesn't really grapple with at the same time that they are interpreting broader Second Amendment rights. With regard to racial disparities, which I've mentioned in the article, a lot of areas are going to look at the reasonableness of somebody's use of firearms. And what we've seen is, again, from the research is that people of color, and in particular, Black men, people tend to interpret them as larger, stronger, older, more likely to commit violence or of greater danger to commit physical violence. And so that can influence both somebody's decision of whether or not to shoot somebody for fear of their own safety, but also in a jury's interpretation of whether that action was reasonable or not. And so you can see how those sort of biases that we know exist can come into play, again, to sort of further exacerbate these disparities. Finally, what kinds of gun regulations can we expect this Supreme Court to uphold? And where should policymakers be going? It's a good question. Because it's so historically focused, one avenue would be to look at older gun regulations that were prevalent in enough jurisdictions and try to map those on to current restrictions that would be effective as much as possible. But I will say in this decision, both in the oral argument and some mentions in the opinions for Bruin, mention this idea of sensitive spaces. So even as the court is saying that there is a constitutional right to carry firearms in public, they're not saying that anybody can carry firearms at any point in time anywhere they want. The problem with that is they don't really lay out what qualifies or what characteristics qualify. And this came up a lot in the oral argument for Bruin, where because this law was in New York that was being challenged, does the subway count? Does a large sporting event count? And again, is the question, do we think about it currently and the potential danger of having people carry firearms in that space? Or for something like the subway, do we have to find some sort of public transit restriction that is exactly the same, again, in the 1700s? 
if it's the latter, right, that's going to be a lot more difficult for policymakers to pursue. And so I think right now, again, because of the history-based analysis that the court uses, it's really difficult to figure out what measures to mitigate modern gun violence, which is so incredibly distinct and different than gun violence would have been, again, at the founding or during Reconstruction. It's difficult to figure out how there would be laws in place in those eras that would be similarly effective at this point in time. Thank you, Professor Ulrich. 